Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, next case is Howard et al. versus Iomaxis LLC et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. My name is Benjamin Chesson. I represent Iomaxis LLC in this appeal along with uh, our team over on the right side. We're here today because Mr. Hirsch, Nick Hirsch, as an employee of Iomaxis and an owner of Iomaxis, decided to cross state lines so he could secretly record a telephone conversation between Iomaxis on the one hand and its corporate counsel, Holland and Knight, on the other hand. Mr. Hirsch then hid those recordings for over a year before attempting to disclose them in underlying litigation uh, when his settlement negotiations with the company broke down. Mr. Hirsch's attempts to disclose a transcript of IMAX's conversation with its corporate counsel implicates an important area of corporate law. But it's an area of corporate law that Judge Adam Conrad on the business court has described as particularly unsettled in North Carolina. And while unsettled in North Carolina, it is not unsettled across the country. That area of law is what is the standard that an employee or agent of a company must meet to show that they have an independent attorney-client relationship with a lawyer who also represents a company. Um, again, it's unsettled in North Carolina, but there's an established standard that courts have used for three decades across the United States. There's a decision from the Third Circuit called Bevel, which outlines a five-factor test that courts have used to address this particular area of corporate law. So and in the Bevel case, uh, this, this was um, a, uh, someone who had approached the law firm and before that law firm actually represented that individual communicated with them, sought to have the law firm represent the law firm, ultimately represented the corporation, and if I'm remembering the case right, declined to represent that individual, but then the question was, are the communications protected by the attorney-client privilege? So isn't there a sort of a critical distinction between those facts and this case? Because there was an engagement letter. There's no dispute that Holland and Knight was representing Hirsch. Do you agree with that? Yes, sir. And does that, does the, in your view, does that distinction matter here? Your Honor, I think that in the Bevel case, footnote one deals with this, where footnote one says that the lack of an engagement letter doesn't matter because when you go to consult a lawyer, the attorney-client privilege triggers even before you have an engagement letter. And so they said there, even though there was no formal engagement letter between the individual and the law firm like there is here, it still would have been treated as attorney-client privilege because it was about the consultation. Right, so but... When you look at the test that the Third Circuit adopted um, from the Federal District Court, the test itself seems to include factors that are um, that are originating from the idea that you might not have the attorney-client privilege already established between the individual and the firm. So it seems like a, a test that isn't entirely applicable to the circumstance that we have here. I think that, that it is applicable because you deal with, like in the Bevel case, a communication by communication distinction. And so because it's so intertwined, the employee's legal issues with the company's legal issues, you can't just look broadly to say, this person had a relationship with this law firm, th therefore everything is protected. There are certain communications where an individual, even though they have a relationship with the law firm, they're acting on behalf of the company at that point. And so the company has the privilege. So in Bevel, I think they ultimately put it into three categories. They said there's one period of time where the individual did have the attorney-client privilege, even though there was never an engagement letter. There was one period of time where he definitely did not have the attorney-client privilege, and it was the corporation. And then there was this third set in Bevel where they said you'd have to look at each communication to figure out whether that was meets this test, because one of the elements is does it discuss the general corporate affairs or the individual's legal problems. And for each communication, you would have to apply the test. And so I think that's <coughs> where we find ourselves. There's undoubtedly an engagement between Mr. Hirsch and Holland and Knight. There's undoubtedly an engagement in 2017 between Iomaxis and Holland and Knight. Those engagements cover separate subjects. One is general corporate affairs. The other is the defense of litigation. 
And so I think for each communication, you have to look at <coughs> where it falls, and I think you have to apply the bevel test in terms of whether that lawyer in that communication, <coughs> one, whether the individual made clear that they were seeking legal advice on behalf of themselves instead of the company, and two, whether the lawyer saw fit to provide that legal advice to the individual instead of the, on their behalf of the company. And then you have the fifth factor, which is does it relate to general corporate matters? So I think you have to apply that test to this specific communication, which is the July 22nd, 2020 phone call. So I think in, in, in that context, you would look at um, whether this, because it is a very narrow question that's before you. It's what standard did Mr. Hirsch have to meet? And there's no disagreement that he has the burden of proof. And there's no disagreement in order to waive the privilege, the privilege has to attach in the first place. And you're only dealing with one phone call. It's not the entire Holland and Knight file across the entire law firm. We're dealing with one phone call about a discrete subject. And so I think you look, you apply the bevel test in that context to the facts of that phone call. Um, Counsel, uh, not to skip ahead, but um, do you concede that if the privilege applied to Mr. Hirsch, that he can waive it? I was somewhat surprised not to see, I don't think I saw, uh, any argument about joint privilege and whether if the call was covered by uh, or, or if it was privileged as to all the defendants, whether one defendant could waive that privilege without the consent of the others. Yes, Your Honor. And I think in this case, it's a little bit unique because the engagement letter does contain some language about waiver. And I think that is ultimately a question that the trial court would consider on remand under the proper standard. I do think there are circumstances where if Mr. Hirsch had a privilege with Holland and Knight related to the litigation, he could waive it even if the other defendants did not agree. Um, but I don't think that is the question. He, he could waive it even as to third parties? He could waive it even as to third parties in certain, it, again, I think it depends on what exactly the communication is. I think if it's a communication between him and a lawyer at Holland and Knight with no one else on it, and it's clearly legal advice to him about his situation in this lawsuit, he could waive that. That's obviously not what we have here, but I think more importantly, this court doesn't necessarily need to address that question. <clears throat> in order to waive, he has to first have the privilege. And so I think the question before this court is, one, did the trial court apply the right standard? And two, whether Mr. Hirsch can meet his burden. There's no dispute it is his burden to prove that he had an independent relationship with the lawyers at Holland and Knight that covered the July 22nd, 2020 phone call. And does, does the answer to that um, relate to the capacity in which he participated in the phone call, either as a member uh, or in his, if you will, individual capacity? I think that's the critical question. And I think the trial court, we would suggest that this court should send it back to the trial court to use the proper standard to analyze that exact question. Why would a minority member have any kind of duty to the LLC other than his own individual well-being? Your Honor, there could be a number of circumstances that would raise that. One would be the operating agreement. The operating agreement of an LLC could impose duties on every member that would be above their own self-interest. Here, Judge Robinson didn't look at the operating agreement for that question, and so we don't have the answer before this court. Another could be the individual's role in the company. And I want to, I think this is an important point because um, Mr. Hirsch has taken one position in front of this court and another in front of the trial court on this. In front of this court, he says, I was just a network engineer. I had this one special set of knowledge and really that was my only role. But if you look at page 273 of the record, it's his affidavit to the trial court when he was attempting to sue our clients. The trial court ultimately said he couldn't bring those claims in this case. But what he said, Your Honor, is that his role included many critical things but among them is, quote, participated in strategic planning and performed other mission-critical tasks. So if Mr. Hirsch had taken on the role in IMAXIS, if they had delegated that role to Mr. Hirsch, that he was responsible for, quote, strategic planning, which could include corporate governance matters discussed on July 22nd, then he would have a duty to the company. And so we think Judge, Con Judge Robinson should have considered that question 
in the larger context of the bevel standard can a company that's represented by counsel invite anyone to the meeting with counsel and still expect to have privileged communication certainly not so isn't it a fine line as to mr. Hirsch was not there because of a corporate capacity would he not be a third party to the attorney-client privilege between the attorney and our maxes I think that is a necessary inquiry and again we think it's one this court should send back to the trial court to make instead of that in making that inquiry judge Robinson applied a bright line rule that says because an LLC member may act in their own self-interest here he must have been acting in his own self-interest and we think that's not necessarily true just because a party may have the right to do something doesn't mean they were definitely acting in that capacity on the day of the communication at issue for instance was he participating in his strategic planning role in the company which may have imposed duties on him was there something in the operating agreement that could have imposed duties on him we think judge Robinson skipped that step of the analysis by applying a bright line rule that quite frankly we think would have chilling effects on limited liability companies in North Carolina because it leaves the manager or the majority member with two options one is to consult corporate counsel and not disclose that advice to minority members at all or to disclose the corporate counsel's advice on things like what the operating agreement should be and waive the privilege now we think there should be a third option which is the trial court looks at in what capacity was that advice relayed to the minority member and what duties they may have owed this gets into the subject matter or control tests which I don't think North Carolina has clearly articulated which one we use in the state but regardless of that we think the court should use this case as an opportunity to establish two things as a matter of public policy to help clarify things for companies who are deciding to do business here or lawyers who practice here those two things are one that we use a five-factor test in the context of employees who are claiming a direct attorney-client relationship with a lawyer who also represents their company and two that merely because a minority member of a company could act in their own self-interest doesn't mean they are acting in their own self-interest why couldn't we as the third option instead of what you proposed say that Holland and Knight either needed to have separate outside counsel for the individuals or separate attorneys within the firm and create an ethical wall so that it was clear to everyone involved whether the particular attorney that was communicating was either the firm's attorney or the individual's attorney I don't think the court necessarily has to get to that question which is could Holland and Knight have done it better I don't think you have to get there I think in this case we have enough facts which again the arguments a little clunky because we can't talk about the July 22nd transcript without revealing what's privileged and being waiver but we've provided this list of statements that we think are important and statement two and statement four are statements from the Holland and Knight corporate lawyer who was on the call in which he clarifies which which hat he was wearing at the time they he was participating in the phone call and was offering legal advice and so you know as a structural matter could Holland and Knight have structured the engagements differently perhaps but here we don't necessarily have to get there because there was a clear warning at the beginning of the phone call followed up by qualifications and limitations on the advice that was given during the phone call seem that judge Robinson believed that the even though the attorney involved was said to represent the corporate matters as opposed to litigation that the two are so intertwined you can't really divide them would you comment on that I think it's an important point and it's I think basically we've offered three grant and I'm going to answer this really quick but we've offered three independent grounds for reversal one is the bevel standard the second which comes in third in our brief is the must-have may have rule and then the third is what your honor just just hit on which is the factual findings that judge Robinson made to ultimately draw that conclusion and I think where he erred was he misunderstood the point of the phone call the the underlying litigation between the estate or the trust of a former member and I am access concerns according to their brief this is on pages one and two of the brief that the plaintiffs happily submitted to you they say the central issue is what operating agreement controlled as to the date of Ron Howard's death and 
and, and then also whether the company was North Carolina or Texas. And Judge Robinson's findings of fact that this call related to either of those issues is just incorrect. And we briefed that on page 22 to 28 of our brief, and I'm not sure how to tell you more of that without disclosing the contents of the call. But the call did not center on the move from North Carolina to Texas. It did not address that at all, and Judge Robinson's finding that it did is wrong. The call also did not discuss any corporate change that would have affected anything as of the date Ron Howard died, which is the central issue in the litigation. So I think to say that they're so linked leaves IMAX in, again, a perilous position where either they're going to waive the privilege as to all corporate governance things because it could be perceived as related to the litigation, or they have to go hire a different law firm than the one they've been using for years to do their corporate governance work. And so, again, we think there's this third option where you can look at the specific of what was discussed during the call, what warnings were provided during the call, and determine which engagement letter, which we think are separate things, it falls under. But doesn't that fall in the category of findings of fact? And if there's any evidence in the record to support, isn't that an abuse of discretion standard with findings of fact? It is, absolutely. So we don't run away from that. But the two findings of fact he made, which is one, that the advice was offered without limitation or qualification, there is no evidence in the record to support that. We have statement two in our exhibit and statement four in our exhibit, both statements from Holland and Light lawyers, the lawyer, that are qualifications and limitations on the advice he was giving. So that finding of fact doesn't find any support in the record. The other is the issue of corporate residence, which, again, Judge Robinson just got wrong. There is nothing in the record to support that the corporate matters discussed would have changed the corporate residence that is at issue in the litigation. And so we do think that that is the standard, but we think we meet it here. You didn't reserve any time for rebuttal. Did you intend to? I was going to reserve five minutes. So along the abuse of discretion line, I also wanted to highlight that not only is it there's two issues, there are legal conclusions and there are findings of fact. The legal conclusions, if Judge Robinson used the wrong legal standard, that is an abuse of discretion. So on the things like the Bethel test or the legal standard that he announced that because a member may act in their own self-interest, they must have been acting in their own self-interest. If either of those are wrong, it is an abuse of discretion. And then on the findings of fact, we just covered. I will say that, backing up, this area of corporate law that deals with when an employee or an agent can claim a direct attorney-client relationship with a corporate lawyer is a significant one. And while not addressed in North Carolina, it has been addressed for decades by other courts. And it all stems from what the Supreme Court of the United States has called, quote, special problems that arise in this attorney-client relationship. Because a corporation or a company can't act on its own. It has to act through agents. And those agents oftentimes have legal issues that are intertwined with the corporation's issues. And so what the Third Circuit and others have tried to do is create a test that goes beyond the traditional four elements of attorney-client privilege, like we use in the Miller standard in North Carolina, to account for what the Supreme Court has called special problems. And so how do you deal with a person who may, in one instance, be interacting with a lawyer individually on their own behalf related to their personal legal issues, and on the other instance, acting on behalf of the company to seek legal advice for the company from that same lawyer? And so these courts have determined this five-factor test or five-element test is the best way to do that. Not all of them call it the Bevel test. I think that the Bevel test has been used by the Second Circuit and First Circuit, among others. But other circuits have essentially just articulated the factors without attributing it to the Third Circuit. And those factors are that the individual sought legal advice from the lawyer, that they made clear they were seeking legal advice from the lawyer on their individual behalf. And I think the second element is important because made clear is a quote. They have to make clear that they are not acting on behalf of the company because it is their burden. It is Mr. Hirsch's burden to show he has the privilege if he wants to waive it. The third element is that the lawyer saw fit to provide advice in the individual capacity. The fourth is confidentiality. And the fifth is that it doesn't relate to general corporate affairs. So I think 
that's an important distinction here. And I will say that as I read Mr. Hirsch's brief, he does not argue that this is harmless error, that somehow we would get to the same result if you applied the standard. This is a meaningful difference because you have warnings that were given, statements two and four from the Holland and Knight lawyer that defeat element three. And then you have Mr. Hirsch's own admission, which is statement six in ours, that he wasn't seeking advice in his personal capacity and that he had made other arrangements. And so we think it's critically important that this five-factor test be applied in North Carolina so that companies can know when their employees can claim privilege and waive them or when their employees can claim privilege and prevent the company from waiving them. We also think it's important that lawyers know that so they can structure their relationships with their corporate clients to accomplish everyone's goals. Counsel, if the law is unsettled, how can the trial court be deemed to have abused its discretion? I think if this court determines that the standard is the Bevel standard, that you would send it back to the trial court to consider it under that standard. But the Bevel standard is not controlling in this state. Is that correct? The Bevel standard is not controlling in this state. That is correct. It has never been adopted or denied. So from the standpoint of what you just said about this court looking at what the trial court did as abridging the Bevel standard, you're not standing on the proposition that Bevel must have been followed by the trial court? That's correct, Your Honor. We're not saying that the trial court somehow ignored controlling precedent. We're saying that the law, the better side of the law is the five-factor test that this court should announce that is the law in North Carolina and send it back to the trial court for further proceedings. Do you know if the state of Delaware has adopted the Bevel test? They've adopted, and I cannot cite the case to you, but they have adopted something similar. And again, looking at what was communicated to the lawyer about which hat the employee thought they were wearing and what the lawyers communicated back in terms of which hat they were providing advice, it all ultimately stems from the Upjohn case that talked about warnings that lawyers should give when they represent companies and are interacting with employees. And so different courts kind of reach, use different cases to get there, but that's what I believe the law to be. What should we make of the fact, if anything, that Bevel applies to corporate officers and, of course, Mr. Hirsch here is not a corporate officer of IOMAX? I think there are two important points on this, perhaps three. One is that we don't think Bevel does apply just to corporate officers. Bevel uses the term corporate officials and corporate officers without distinction in the case, but the case law is clear that even low-level employees can have an individual attorney-client relationship with corporate counsel, and that comes from the CFTC case that we cited. So I would say that Bevel is not so limited, that it deals more when an agent of a company is claiming an independent attorney-client relationship. So the second thing is there is no finding by the trial court that Mr. Hirsch is not an officer or director or corporate official. On page 19 of Mr. Hirsch's brief, he tells you he's not. He tells you he has this limited role, but cites nothing in the record for these propositions. Page 19 of his brief, that one paragraph, has one cite, and it doesn't apply to those. Is that an area of contention in this case? I think it would be because you have this affidavit from Mr. Hirsch where he says that he's broadly responsible for strategic planning, and so I think whether that gives him rise to what would be either under the subject matter test or the control test, whether that creates a relationship that could form an independent relationship with corporate counsel. So I do think it would be important for the trial court to consider that. Below, the trial court didn't reach that question because he didn't apply the Bevel test, and we think that he's best suited to make that determination on remand as opposed to this court making findings of fact as to Mr. Hirsch's corporate official status. And then one last point on that. Sorry to speak quickly. Mr. Hirsch says that we've admitted he was not a corporate official, and I want to be clear what we argued at the trial court. The trial court argument focused on whether in 2021 Mr. Hirsch could waive the privilege, and by that point in 2021, Mr. Hirsch was no longer associated with IMAXIS. He was not an employee or an owner, according to IMAXIS. And so the question at the trial court level that IMAXIS argued, what was his status in 2021? The question for the court on remand would be what was his status in 2020 
when he crossed state lines to secretly record this phone call? That question, Iomaxis didn't comment on. So we take real exception to what I think is a quote that says we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. There are two different distinct periods in time, one dealing in 2021, when the relevant question is what his status was in 2020. So, I'm just going to ask you, in terms of uh, how you want this court to construe Bevel, uh, are you, when you say that Bevel shouldn't just be deemed to be restricted to corporate officials, are you asking us to expand Bevel if we should find it to be appropriate in North Carolina to apply to someone in Mr. Hirsch's position, or are you saying that standing as it already does, that Bevel applies to individuals such as Mr. Hirsch? I think two things. One is that I think the trial court hasn't made a finding of fact of whether he was a corporate official. And so the court, it should go back to the court to make that finding of fact under either analysis. I think the second point would be our view of Bevel is it applies to agents of companies who are claiming a direct attorney-client relationship, regardless of their status as a corporate official. And I think that comes from the CFTC case that we cited from the United States Supreme Court that says even low-level employees could have a direct attorney-client relationship with corporate counsel, depending on the circumstances. Counsel, you're well within rebuttal time. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. <coughs> Here from the FLE. Good afternoon. May it please the court. My name is Jason Miller. Uh, I, along with co-counsel Robert Orr, and Rob Rader uh, represent the appellee Nicholas Hirsch in this matter. Uh, there's a number of facts I'd like to uh, put in front of the court that I think are important contextually uh, to help fill in a lot of these gaps, but I think it would be maybe a better use of my time to respond to some of the questions that the uh, court had. <clears throat> and so maybe I'll do that in shotgun fashion if that would be okay with the court. Um, Justice Berger and Justice Morgan, I think, identified what is a critical hole in IM Access's argument. Um, how could Judge Robinson? have uh, abused his discretion and misapplied the law when Bevel is not the law of this state. Uh, that, that seems to be, I, I didn't hear an explanation on that. I don't know how a trial court could misapply the law if it's not the law of this state. The second thing I heard. Um, well, but wouldn't, uh, I think your friend would respond uh, that many other states have examined this and said there needs to be a special law for this circumstance. That question was, has never been presented to this court. If, in examining that question, we determine that we should join our sister states and uh, federal circuits and say there should be law, we would need to remand it to the trial court because the trial court didn't have the benefit of knowing what the law was when it uh, used its discretion. Would you agree with that? Uh, Justice Deeds, I would certainly uh, agree that this court has the authority to, to state what the law of this state is and to remand it for proceedings in accordance with that law. Uh, I would direct the court to the arguments made uh, by counsel in the underlying trial court. They never raised this issue. They didn't raise that the prior, that the wrong standard was applied. In fact, Judge Robinson asked them on page 12 and 13 of the underlying transcript, have you looked at whether the substantive law of attorney-client privilege differs between the various states that you contend might be implicated? Response by Mr. Chesson. In terms of the five elements, it does not appear that they do. I think where you potentially get different out outcomes, Your Honor, is with the fiduciary duty exceptions and so on and so forth. But I think the basic elements of attorney-client privilege are the same in those jurisdictions. But the, the parties can't stipulate to what the law is, right? So if we conclude that this is what the law on attorney-client privilege needs to be, we're, we're not bound by the fact that, I mean, the, the argument that this is protected by attorney-client privilege or that it's not is, was raised in the trial courts. Uh, I see it now, right? I think this court can, can certainly uh, set forth what the law is and require the lower court to uh, hold proceedings in accordance with that statement. I raise that issue to say this was abandoned at the trial court level. It was never raised. And so to raise it now at, in front of the Supreme Court we don't think is appropriate. Um, more, more to your point, though, Justice Dietz, when you look at Bevel, uh, it is not analogous to this case at all. In Bevel, you have a corporate... Uh, client that has waived privilege, and the question is whether corporate officials in their own, uh, to their own benefit can prevent the corporation from waiving that privilege. And that's essentially what we have, um, the opposite of what we have here, where we're attempting to waive, they're attempting to stop it, but Bevel deals with whether there's a joint representation. 
And there's a lot of analysis in, in Bevel that I think the court sort of honed in on about whether particular conversations were pursuant to a joint representation or whether they were separate. And I think the court there very much focuses on uh, that there was not an established joint representation with regard to particular communications. Moreover, um, the issue of waiver is one that I believe Justice Allen uh, raised as to whether one party can waive. That was the issue in Bevel. Here, that's not an issue. Uh, as opposing counsel is readily admitted to the court, they acknowledge that Mr. Hirsch has the right to waive if he has a privilege. And so this issue of... Can I ask you just, uh, in your view, was Holland the Knight wearing two hats in the meeting? I don't want to get too much into the substance of what counsel uh, was talking about that's, that's under seal, but is it your position that at, at that moment Holland Knight was only representing Hirsch? Uh, unquestionably, Holland Knight was representing both Iomaxis and Hirsch. So here's my question. If you look at the Miller standard and you walk through uh, that test, where is the part of the test that says, uh, and if there's two hats, there needs to be some determination of what, you know, if, for example, counsel at the beginning of a conversation where counsel's wearing two hats, the company and an individual says, now, right now, I'm only giving advice as the lawyer for the company, and that would be a relevant factor under our test, because as you walk through the Miller test, you would just say, is there an attorney-client relationship? What, you know, were they seeking legal, and then that's the end of it, and the two hats becomes irrelevant. It, so I'm it, wondering, should we do something more like what Delaware does, and say in this circumstance, there is more to the Miller test, which is to determine what hat the uh, counsel's wearing at that moment. Uh, Justice Dietz, I would say that the narrow issue is whether Hirsch had the privilege and whether he can waive it. And so the Miller elements apply to Hirsch. There's no argument at the trial court or here that uh, he can't waive it because somebody else may have also had privilege. And in fact, the engagement letter takes this direct issue on. Holland and Knight, in the second paragraph, this is docket entry exhibit 83. In the second paragraph, there was a question about whether Holland and Knight should have brought in separate counsel. Well, they recommended that IOMAX bring in separate counsel. And in the letter, they say, as we discussed, the best way to proceed in this matter would be for each of you to obtain separate counsel. Notwithstanding this, you have said you would each like to keep legal costs to a minimum and desire H&K to represent all of you. They then go on to explain the risks of that. And finally, the parties uh, acknowledge by signing it, all of the individual members and IOMAXs sign uh, indicating that in the event that there's a conflict between them, attorney-client privilege will not prevent them from uh, disclosing this information. And so we, we think the facts of this case uh, present an inquiry as to whether uh, Hirsch had the privilege. There's already an acknowledgement that he can waive it by the other side. And so we don't think the court at this stage needs to uh, address the unique scenario that might exist where there is a, a question about whether one party can waive or not, or whether there's even a joint representation. Everyone agrees and stipulates that there was in this particular case. Um, can I just ask you about that point? Because as I understand um, the argument on the other side, they're saying that this retainer letter isn't the one that was sort of in operation when um, this particular communication was going on and that it was the prior engagement letter. So, so what is, what's, what's your position about why this is the retainer letter that applies to this communication? Your Honor, we think the, both the retainer letters themselves and the rules of professional conduct state very clearly that when a, uh, in, a client retains a law firm, they retain the entire law firm. And we think in this particular instance, trying to parse out that there were portions of the advice were more corporate in nature or more uh, litigation strategy in nature ignores what was really going on here. And I think me stepping back now and providing some of the key facts from the record would be helpful. Uh, Mr. Orr is going to make a lot of the substantive arguments, but I think it is important to look at what was actually discussed in that record. And so, uh, stepping back, how we got to this point, uh, Mr. Howard was a 51% owner of the company, and they couldn't get information from Iomaxis about the value of his ownership, uh, what the status of the company was, and the plaintiff learned that Mr. Burr had attempted to move the company to Texas from North Carolina after uh, uh, Mr. Howard had died and try to put documents in place and operate an agreement there, et cetera. Um, and the estate brought a lawsuit to have the court declare what is the operable operating agreement. And that's the, that's the central issue. 
And so when you, when you think about that, uh, on the precipice of the depositions happening in this case for the Almaxis folks, they quickly settle. Uh, that ends up getting set aside by Judge Gale in May of 2020. These conversations happen in July of 2020, and they're discussing creating and backdating an operating agreement to the day after Mr. Howard died. Counsel, you, you, you do need to be aware of what is under seal and keep your remarks away from what might be not be public, please. Uh, I'll do that, uh, Chief Justice. The issue, uh, the issue concern I would have is there was a motion to close these proceedings, and that motion was denied. The motion was denied, but there's still documents that were filed under seal, and uh, there was a second motion that said we, uh, certain things would be referred to uh, pursuant to a code or a, 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 a separate way of referring to those. So I think there are ways to make the arguments without perhaps being as specific that would get into areas that are under seal. Chief Justice, I think maybe a way I might propose dealing with that is that was a motion filed by opposing counsel that uh, we didn't see the code before it was filed with court. Um, I have the sections that I would otherwise talk about, and I have copies for everyone. Uh, maybe the way would be for me to not mention it in my remarks and to hand a copy up for the court and opposing counsel and uh, treat that in the same way their code sheet uh, is being treated in terms of that being under seal. Would that be appropriate? That sounds appropriate to me, counsel. If you want to stop the timer just while these are handed up. can hand them to the clerk. Chief Justice, I think it would be appropriate for me. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Chief Justice, I, g given that fact and, and that my role is really to talk about the facts and, uh, and the court has sort of asked me not to talk about the uh, particulars in the record, I think it would probably be appropriate for me to yield most of my time to Mr. Orr to make arguments. I, I will say before I do that, that um, the nature of these calls being uh, right after the, uh, the settlement agreement was set aside and with the express purpose of putting an operating agreement in place uh, with uh, a number of references in the document I just handed up as to why that operating agreement would impact the litigation, that these conversations were unquestionably related to the litigation and that was their only purpose uh, and, and conducting these conversations was for litigation strategy. Um, Before you sit down, let me check with other members of the court if anybody else has other questions of you. Counsel, I have a question about waiver, and I'm happy to direct it to your co-counsel, but you responded to it initially, so it's up to you whether you want me to ask you or ask your co-counsel. I think it'd probably be appropriate since I've used uh, 12 minutes of our time to yield the floor to Mr. Orr, and, unless you wanted to ask I'm me. I'm happy to ask. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Members of the court, good afternoon. I'm Bob Orr here on behalf of Nick Hirsch. Uh, I think this is a much more straightforward case than perhaps we've been led to believe. This is uh, a request of this court to review a single order by a very experienced superior court judge to determine the single question of whether Nick Hirsch had an attorney-client privilege and would have the ability to waive this one conversation that took place on July 22nd. Now, I would uh, 
reference the standard because I think it's extremely important uh, the standard of review that this court is dealing with and I would refer to a case that Justice Berger wrote when he was on the uh, Court of Appeals Gunner versus Mayhair which is uh, cited at page 28 of our brief dealing with the question of attorney-client privilege and here's what Justice Berger and the unanimous panel said we also reviewed the trial court's application of attorney-client privilege under an abuse of discretion standard. Under an abuse of discretion standard, this court may only disturb a trial court's ruling if it was manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. When the trial court acts within its discretion, this court may not substitute its own judgment for that of the trial court. And then Just, Justice Berger, then Judge Berger and the panel went on to lay out the North Carolina test for determining whether attorney-client privilege applies. And in this case, uh, Judge Robinson, a very experienced Superior Court judge, reviewed all of the transcripts, all of the evidence that was available, and came to the very reasoned conclusion that yes, in fact, uh, Mr. Hirsch did have an attorney-client privilege and if he so chose, would be able to waive it. And I do think one of the things that was missing in the uh, initial argument is the fact that Mr. Hirsch is a defendant in the lawsuit filed by the Ron Howard estate. Uh, the, the Bevel test, and we've had, had a lot of discussion about Bevel, but that dealt with questions of a corporate employee or a corporate official, and that, those aren't the facts of this case. Counsel, yes. Um, I believe it, that I understood your co-counsel to uh, concede that the privilege as to the call, even if you're right, um, was not didn't belong just to Mr. Hirsch, but also the call was privileged as to IMAXIS. Um, are you is your position that under North Carolina law, uh, the law of joint privilege allows? one participant in the privilege to waive without the consent of others? Or is your position that this, this sentence in the um, Holland Knight letter of uh, July 17, 2018 uh, effectively um, contracts that away? I would say the engagement letter uh, contracts that away in the sense that uh, they are all put on notice, including the corporation and the four individual defendants, are put on notice that, okay, we're going to represent everybody, but if a conflict arises, you need to know that n nothing that you've told us is going to be privileged. Uh, and so to the extent that a conflict subsequently arose, in part because of Mr. Hirsch's concerns about uh, uh, testimony or, or, or comments about backdating this operating agreement and how it might affect the litigation, all of which Judge Robinson goes through in great detail, uh, you know, provides him the attorney-client privilege. If he has it under the engagement letter, he has the, the right to waive it. So uh, I, I would think that would be the controlling law in, in the case, Justice Allen. Your friend, I think, would respond to that and say all that the engagement letter was doing was restating a principle that's in the rules of professional conduct and which other courts recognize, which is if a dispute arises among the joint defense privilege holders, that the privilege is then waived. But it doesn't answer the question that Justice Allen had to begin with, which is it does that apply then to the whole world, to third parties? Does it, does it waive the privilege and anybody can now access that, those I, previously I, privileged communications? I, I think that certainly was Judge Robinson's understanding. Uh, in his order, uh, after he determines that, in fact, there was uh, an attorney-client privilege under the joint, uh, under the litigation engagement uh, letter, and he goes through the, the various steps required in the North Carolina test, uh, he concludes that uh, that Hirsch holds the ACP as to the July 22 call and therefore may opt to waive the privilege if he so desires. I mean, that's his ruling. Now, is that 
uh, an abuse of discretion. I'm, I'm unaware of any law cited by opposing counsel that would say that's incorrect, particularly in light of the engagement letter that gives to each of the individuals or puts them on notice that, uh, you know, if there's a conflict, anything you say is fair game for everybody else. Uh, if, if for some reason you had to have all of your, your uh, co-defendants to agree to allow you to waive it, it wouldn't be much of a, um, uh, much protection, I would say, if you get in a situation like Mr. Hirsch found himself in. But here's the, the odd thing about the Miller test, which of course, so what the trial court was doing was applying our legal standard. Correct. And the, uh, if you look at that standard, uh, and imagine a hypothetical where an attorney wearing the two hats, as we discussed what's happening here, so an attorney with two hats, representing the firm and individuals, goes into a meeting with um, officers of the firm, also individuals, they could be owners, it doesn't matter, and, um, and says, okay, I'm going to talk about this litigation in which I'm representing all of you, but right now, I'm the corporation's counsel, I want to talk about issues related to the corporation, and begins to provide that legal advice, making it very clear that's what counsel's doing. If you walk through the Miller factors, a trial court, uh, you know, that's following our law would say it doesn't matter. It, it, meet, it checks all the boxes as they go down through the test, and so therefore, this individual holds the privilege here and can waive it. And shouldn't we consider whether we need more sophisticated tests for these types of situations? Uh, and Justice these I would suggest when the right set of facts come to this court, you may very well want to consider that. But those aren't the facts of this case. What was at issue, and if, if you look at the transcript, and, and I'm not sure about codes and what, quite what I can say and what I can't say, uh, if you look at the transcript of the hearing where uh, counsel for IMAXs describes the Howard litigation and the kinds of issues, it's obvious that everything has to do with the Howard estate feeling like, you know, the books are getting cooked and we're being shortchanged on, on resources that are supposed to go to uh, our client. And it all has to do with the question of, is it a North Carolina corporation? Is it a Texas corporation? Was that done properly? And, and so this operating agreement, which obviously is a corporate, in, you know, it's in the corporate context, but as Judge, Rob, uh, Judge Robinson found over and over, it involves the, the heart of the litigation at which Hirsch is one of the defendants. And so, uh, you know, a long, long answer to your question is I, I think maybe under the correct set of facts, this court might want to consider, you know, a test that applies in, in a discrete set of circumstances. But that's not what we have here. We have a lawsuit, we have defendants, all the people on the call were defendants in the lawsuit, uh, including the corporation which was represented by its CEO. And simply because the, the, the lawyer for Holland and Knight is giving corporate advice about, you know, shell corporations and, and moving from an S Corps to a C Corps doesn't take it out of the realm of the uh, critical components to Mr. Hirsch about, uh, you know, the impact of backdating this operating agreement. And... Okay. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you can keep your remarks to what is, has not been redacted, that would be helpful. I, I, Your Honor, I appreciate oh, me, that. And I what? appreciate... To what has been redacted, I guess is the way I should say yeah, it. I, I appreciate the challenge. I, I think everything I've tried to say is in Judge Robinson's order, which, which I'm not 100% sure how much of that. There's was a public redacted. version of that. I don't know. Yeah. I assume that's what was yeah. in our record. So, if you would. I, I confess this is a unique situation. It is for unique. Me, Robert, trying, <laughs> trying to figure this out. I, I would simply, I, I mean, I, I think the court obviously is going to read the unredacted versions. So, uh, I, I think everything in, I'm sorry. No, I'm just wanting him to start the timer again. Yeah, okay. Uh, everything in Judge Robinson's order, all of the evidence that he relies on, which is based on the July 17th call, which is not privileged, uh, or which is not uh, at issue here. 
So everything in the July 17th letter or call, some of which certainly uh, refers to the upcoming Ju July 22nd call. Judge Robinson does say that. You know, the July 17th call tees up the July 22nd call about the proposed amended operating agreement, which cannot go into effect if all of the members don't sign it. And if they don't sign it, then all of these uh, questions involving the proper transfer of a North Carolina corporation to a Texas corporation, all of which potentially impacts, at least as I understand it, uh, distribution of assets or as... Well, why don't you just say it relates to the underlying lawsuit? Okay, relates to the underlying lawsuit. Uh, uh, counsel, I, I really don't mean to beat a dead horse, but um, suppose we look at the uh, sentence, the purported waiver sentence, in the July 2018 letter, and we conclude that all it really says is that the privilege in the event of a dispute is waived between or among the defendants and not as to the world. Uh, would your position still be uh, that, the, uh, that, that your client, Mr. Hirsch, had the unilateral right to waive the privilege? I think each individual defendant has, and this is one of the issues that uh, opposing counsel has raised about self-interest. Uh, yes, Mr. Hirsch has enormous self-interest. One, in a business context, because you're talking about taking an operating agreement and not signing it prospectively, but backdating it several years so that things that have already happened uh, are then going to impact him as a minority owner. So clearly he has self-interest there. But in the context of the, the litigation with the Howard estate and the issues raised and talked about uh, in Judge Robinson's order, there are implications well beyond just pocketbook issues uh, and operating issues if, you know, under any circumstance, and this is certainly not uh, anything that's been, been proven, but if, if backdating the agreement to the day after Ron Howard's death and then there are misrepresentations in a deposition and in the litigation, Hirsch as a defendant is potentially on the hook. So he has, he has a huge amount of self-interest in in this, and so I would certainly say that uh, the litigation letter, what Judge Robinson found is if he has this individual privilege via the litigation, then he's got a right to waive it if he so chooses. Uh, and if the other defendants don't like it, I think that's, you know, that's the, uh, that's just simply the fallout uh, from it. Let, but, let, let me ask what I think is sure. Justice Allen's question a little differently, which is from a public policy perspective, uh, we believe that uh, uh, individuals disclosing freely to their attorneys uh, information is a laudable uh, situation. Um, why should we, so, so if as among the people in the conversation, uh, uh, if there's a breakdown and that information is needed vis-a-vis -vis those parties, that would be one step. Why should we also allow that information to be disclosed to unrelated third parties? Well, as, as a policy measure, uh, if, if I could flip it, it, it's why should we continue to keep it secret? What value is it? You know, let's say in a hypothetical, uh, the, the conversation said, okay, we're going to hide these assets over here to make sure we avoid the IRS taxing us. Okay, and her says, whoa, if this goes down, I could go to jail. And, and so, okay, you can waive your privilege, Mr. Hirsch, but you can't tell anybody. 
that, you know, from a public policy standpoint, and I do think the Miller case talks some towards the end of it in Justice Lake's opinion about, you know, the, 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 there are some reasons why you don't want uh, an attorney-client privilege to be, be too expansive. But I would say, you know, if, if, you're, if you're potentially on, uh, on the hook, you're, you could be liable for a criminal charge, for civil uh, litigation issues, then if you waive it, it, it would be good public policy to allow you to disclose it because otherwise it's of no value. I mean, what are you going to go home and, you know, tell your spouse? I mean, it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't uh, have any, any weight. So that would be my, my answer on that. Uh, can I ask, I, I think I have a similar question but a slightly different context. You know, joint representation occurs in all sorts of legal contexts. Sure. And, and why wouldn't it be the case that whether or not a, a single a single individual in a or a single entity in a joint representation situation, whether or not a single entity can waive privilege or it has to be some other mechanism for deciding when to waive privilege, why isn't that a matter for agreement amongst the jointly represented parties? And what does the law say we do if there is no such agreement? Well, the, in, in joint representation, whether it's in the criminal context or civil context, you know, you go into it thinking we're all on the same page. But as each member of this court knows from their, their experiences as attorneys, those kind of, of we're all together fall apart pretty quickly. And, and so, uh, you know, having some sort of box that, you know, you're, you're stuck with. Once you go into a joint, uh, joint representation uh, status that, that if something happens that you now have adverse uh, interest uh, to the other, other people and you're, you're boxed in, you can't do anything about it because uh, somehow, the, even if it's determined by a court is here, that you have a privilege and you can waive it, but you can't tell anybody uh, it seems to me that would be a bad rule. And I see my time is fast going down. I would simply uh, refer the court back. Counsel, I, I do have one more question. I'm sorry, but, um, and this, let I me think just go ahead and say, I'm, I'll, I'll give you an extra minute. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm at the risk here, I think, of taking, you know, following up on the Chief Justice and, and Justice Earl's question, turning it kind of purely into rhetoric. But, but my question to you is if, uh, there were some states that had a legal doctrine that said the courts would weigh the importance of the attorney-client privilege and the importance of using that information for whatever purpose that one holder wants. And there's some sort of test, balancing test there. And you were a business or stakeholders in a business choosing which state you wanted to do business in. Wouldn't you prefer to have that option rather than what you're proposing to us, which is use the old Miller test and in every circumstance the privilege is waived automatically? Justice Deese, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, from a business standpoint, you know, maybe. But, you know, the, the attorney-client privilege extends well beyond, you know, the context of corporations and the like. And again, like I say, maybe if, if you have a bevel-type situation, you know, those are the kinds of... of of parameters you might want to build into a, a new rule on those discrete facts. But where, where you uh, have a situation like we have here, where it's, you know, it's, you know, they're defendants, they're joint defendants, civil, but they could be criminal defendants. And so you've got to protect that individual right, uh, it seems to me, uh, at the expense of corporation or the other defendants because there has to be as, as Judge Robinson points out in his order uh, a, a substantial degree of self-interest so is, is that at least marginally <laughs> answer your question that, so in, in, in conclusion I would simply say uh, go back to the test as articulated uh, uh, in Justice Berger's opinion and Miller and, and all of those about how you, how you review abuse of discretion. And I know the court, if you haven't already read, and I suspect you have, the, trans, the unredacted transcripts and the, um, 
the judge's order maybe multiple times. It, it's, it's clear, it is obvious that Judge Robinson took this, as he always does, with great, great seriousness, and he examined all of the evidence, he listened to all of the arguments, he made a reasoned, uh, substantial uh, order, and we would respectfully urge this court to affirm it uh, and determine that there's certainly no abuse of discretion. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Rebuttal. And I'll give you a little extra time as well. I'll try not to take it. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you a question right at the start. So, <laughs> so what should we add to uh, the Miller test? What, what components or what component? I think that the court should articulate a specific test where an agent of a company is asserting an independent attorney-client relationship, and it should be the five-factor test or something similar to that, where the agent has to make clear that they are seeking counsel in their individual capacity as opposed to on behalf of the company, and the lawyer has to see fit to offer that advice. I think well, if, if, if an, uh, an individual says, uh, were to say, hypothetically, uh, I'm going to consult my own attorney as well, uh, what impact does that have? I mean, does that show less reliance or does that show uh, and should put everybody on notice that this person has multiple attorneys? I think it's a critical factor because it would show, it, again, when you get back to what have they clearly articulated to the lawyer and what has the lawyer agreed to provide in terms of the attorney-client relationship, if they're out there expressing, I have my own lawyer who I'm going to ask about this, then the lawyer is reasonably there to, to believe that that person will advise them in their individual capacity and that the lawyer providing the advice is advising them in their corporate capacity. And so I think that would be one thing, one factor that could be considered under what is a bevel test or, or something along those lines. I, uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of the facts. I appreciate my friend Mr. Orr, who I met this morning has not been involved in this case for as long as the rest of us. And I would say that almost every allegation he has alleged about the underlying suit, we disagree with. The underlying suit relates to what state Iomaxis was incorporated in as of the date Ron Howard died um, and, and what operating agreement controlled as to that date. And if you look at statement three in our key, it talks about dating issues, and it does not overlap with those issues. It simply does not relate to the litigation. I think um, one other point that was raised that I want to respond to is how sacrosanct the attorney-client privilege is. And I think that um, this has been hit on by multiple justices in the questions, but I would point the court to Commodities Future Trading Commission versus Weintraub, which we cite, which is the United States Supreme Court. And it says that the attorney-client privilege, quote, uh, serves the function of promoting full and frank communications between attorneys and their clients. And then it goes on to say that that, that that allowing that full and frank conversation, quote, encourages observation, observance of the law and aids in the administration of justice. And I think this gets to the waiver issue and what folks will be willing to tell their lawyers if they're concerned that someone's going to put a secret tape recorder in the room and then reveal that later to third parties and what chilling effect that would have in North Carolina or otherwise to Judge Deese's point, Justice Deese's, Deese's point about where folks would decide to do business. Um, because this is, this involves, and, and I think they've tried to cherry pick a number of statements that maybe aren't the most flattering, but this involves a communication, a meeting between a client and their lawyer, the most intimate communication we have with our clients is meetings where they tell us ideas and we tell them whether they can do them or they can't. And this isn't some formal policy letter or written work product from their lawyer or emails with their client. This is in a setting where the client is intended to be most vulnerable so the lawyers can encourage them and, and promote observation of, of the law. And so I would say it is incredibly important that we preserve the privilege here, both as lawyers and as clients. Um, and so I think that that is an incredibly important point. I think, and I'll be quick and wrap this up, is that 
Mr. Orr said in, op in opposition to that, that, oh, but what if they're going to do something wrong? Then shouldn't they be encouraged to tell them, we have a crime fraud exception. Judge Robinson didn't reach that. He said that that wasn't a question. It was one of the three that he said he would have to address, but then he only addressed the first. And so if we, we have that built in, we don't need new rules. We don't need to abandon the attorney-client privilege because there could be crime fraud. We have that built in. And if Judge Robinson applies the correct standard and ultimately gets to whether crime fraud would be an exception, he could deal with that then. And if I could make one last point, you were handed up an attachment, which I had not seen. And I want to be clear, it contains excerpts from two calls. One is a July 17 call, one is a July 22nd call. No Holland and Knight lawyer was on the July 17 call. It provides no evidence of what a Holland and Knight lawyer was told about the legal advice or what they agreed to provide in terms of the legal advice. Those are two separate calls and no Holland and Knight lawyer was on the first one. So the only evidence related to what Holland and Knight lawyers were told as to what they were seeking legal advice about and the only evidence of what the Holland and Knight lawyers agreed to provide legal advice is July 22nd. And thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Mr. Clark.